All right, hello everybody. Welcome back to Giants. Um, I'm very excited about today's episode because Jeffrey Shostak is with us. Jeffrey is president at Shostak Brothers and Company. But his story, his family's history is amazing. But I'm excited because I've known Jeffrey, I don't know, seven, eight, ten years now. And I know Jeffrey as, as a father of three, a husband to Rachel, uh, golf buddies. We, we talk business and life, but we never really get into your business. So this show, um, it's really just about people in, in their businesses, all different types of businesses, and your family's history and your current in the company is, is absolutely amazing. So I'm super excited to have you talk about a lot of different things. We have John Leonis. And I'm excited because I've seen that giant sign over by the Palace of Auburn Hills and wondered what was going on with it when it was still up, and I'm, I'm excited about uh, hearing a little more about that too. Yeah, so thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. All right, so the first thing I want to talk about is... You know, Showstack uh, Brothers and Companies, you are what generation? Fourth generation. Fourth generation. G4, as we call it. All right, it. so G4. When you think about that, okay, that's very special. So I don't know if you guys know these stats. I was looking up some of these stats. So 30% of companies survive to G2, generation two. 12% survive to third gen. Three to four percent survive to fourth generation. So that is super unique. The company is 100 years old, 102, 103? 103, yeah. 103 1920. Another crazy stat, less than 1% of companies, 0.5% of companies make it over 100 years. Like these are crazy stats and you guys do it pretty seamlessly. I, I'm sure there was a lot of challenges along the way, but I guess what's it like being Gen 4 and what are, what are some of the things you're going to do, I mean, which sounds virtually impossible, to get it to Gen 5? What kind of things are you experiencing now, and, and what's going on? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we're very proud to have gotten this far. Um, you know, like you pointed out, Simon, G4 is very rare. And it really kind of goes back to my grandfather, who was G2, and he really instilled this, like, family glue, as we called it. And so everyone grew up whether it was his four boys, then two daughters later in life, and then now my generation, which is the cousins, we all grew up very close. And, you know, we always did things together. We vacationed together. My dad and uncles, they were sailboat racers together, so they were living on these sailboats in close quarters. And so his whole thing was, you know, really togetherness and this family glue. And it makes a huge difference because families, if you're not close, as families get bigger, business gets bigger, it's just, it's a challenge. Uh, so, I mean, I think the biggest key now is now we're in the cousin generation. And, you know, we didn't grow up sharing a bedroom like my dad and uncles did. But, you know, we grew up close. And so it's really just making sure, you know, all of, all of the things that really my dad and uncles set up in the transition from G3 to G4 is that we need to make sure to instill those properly to continue on from G4 to G5. And a lot of those things are, if you want to work in the business, great. We'd love to have you. There's no obligation. There's no indentured servitude, as you know, some people joke about it. But if you want to work, we want to have you. But my grandfather used to say, separate but equal. And so he would never really have you know, my uncles doing the same thing. And a great example is that is how we're in the real estate business and the restaurant business is my, the youngest brother, Mark, of G3, when he was ready to join the business, 
my grandfather, kind of your classic, you know, post-World War II entrepreneur, and he built this big business. And he said, you know, real estate's good. We got Bobby and David. And um, we were at the time, there's an opportunity to get in a restaurant business. He said, Mark, you're in charge of the restaurants. So I think the biggest key to kind of growth is you don't want too many family members doing the same thing. And if you can find ways to sort of divide and conquer, and fortunately the business has grown enough that we're in all different asset classes, that we should have the opportunity to do that. But it's not easy. No, I'm <laughs> sure. And it takes a lot of planning. Yeah. That sounds, that's unbelievable. And, and you said food and real estate. Did you always gravitate to the real estate? Yeah, I always did. So, I mean, growing up, I don't know exactly why or how. Like, I have an older brother. He's a doctor. He, you know, he worked in the mailroom and stuff at the office like we all did. But he never really seemed to want to get into the real estate business. For whatever reason, I always did. You know, I would go on business trips with my dad when I was little. I'd carry his briefcase, work in the mailroom as a kid, which is a rite of passage. If you want anyone that's worked in the Showstack Brothers, it's a family member, started in the mailroom. Like we would do it in the summers. We would do it Mondays after school. We'd get dropped off at school at the office and do it. And, you know, random spring breaks, I would work there instead of, you know, maybe going on a trip or whatnot. I just always kind of wanted to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. So... I'm Lebanese and Italian. I grew up in family businesses and we talked to none of our family members. So I kind of envy what you guys are doing. That's unbelievable. John, you're a crazy history buff. When you said 100 years, what was like, what it popped in your mind? Uh, visually, I think about the 1920s and, you know, your family was probably even here just slightly before that. And, uh, and the different challenges of the times without the technology and, um, you know, having to have probably business connections because probably so much business to business transactions and it also being so much more consolidated in those big beautiful buildings in Detroit and not as spread out as it is now um, but I mean there's probably incredible stories um, you know that that are that are written down or just passed on in your family anything that you know serves as an example yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, you look back and obviously, you know, go all the way to the 20s, but even the, you know, the 70s and 80s, it's amazing, you know, how they were, you kind of laugh, like, how did you get things done, you know, without phones and computers? But if you really go back, so we actually have in our office, I could send you a picture of it, it's two original Detroit City plat books. And they're pretty big, you know, they're about this size, and there's two of them right next to each other. And that's how my great-grandfather found property. He'd open it up, he would look at it, you know, you'd figure out, you know, where to go, and he would send people off, and they're very, very cool books. But really is what we were doing back in the 20s and, you know, 30s post-depression is we were helping merchants. You're right, it was mostly downtown Detroit or kind of greater Detroit. It was essentially merchants that owned, you know, a retail shop, whatever it might be, on Woodward Avenue, Washington Boulevard, Livernois, whatever it was, and we were just helping them grow. We were essentially tenant rep brokers before that term existed, and that's what my grandfather did. The company started, you know, in brokerage, and it was, you know, there's, it's hard to imagine, you know, some of these stories are so old, you don't know, like, all the truth to them, but yeah, a lot of the cool buildings in Detroit, you know, if you're around this long, you know, my great-grandfather had, you know, a part, not a lot of them. Oh, cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that is cool. I, I watch like I'm really big on like the men who built America and all yeah, that stuff. And, and, and you hear these you hear these crazy numbers about like, what are you gonna go do? on. I, I was just going to you know, plug in something. Yeah, I just need to put a little oh. bit of this in. <laughs> uh, the uh, men who built America and you 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 see these crazy numbers. They were talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Like, how do they manage 
Like right now we get on our phones, we wire money, right? And we do, <laughs> we do all this, you know, simple. Like these guys had actual cash and checks and banks were getting robbed. And like, it's pretty remarkable how you, how you could grow back then. I, I find it really fascinating. So you, you, I remember you told me something a long time ago that your family kind of, and I, I can't remember the exact details of it, if you wanted to get into the family business after college, didn't they kind of like, wasn't there a process? Yeah, exactly. So if you want to work in our family business, you have to work away for five years. And by the way, you don't have to work in real estate. You don't have to work in restaurants, but you got to do something on your own. And it was one of the things when we were starting the transition, but before the transition really started from G3 to G4, but when we started knowing that I was going to get in the business, uh, my dad and uncles went to Kellogg and Northwestern. They have a family business program, kind of took up some pointers, some you know um, things they recommend, got a family business consultant. And that was one of the things that came out. So we kind of started to put a few of these rules in place. And really the reality is, I mean, look, every person's situation is different. So when people ask me, I'm not always like pushing it on them because you never know. It could be an older founder and he wants to work with his kid for a couple of years. And, you know, so like he doesn't want to wait around for that because maybe he's older in life or unhealthy, whatever it might be. But if you can do it, it's a great thing because you know, I worked in Chicago for five years. You're on your own. You know, you're, you're making your own mistakes, you're learning things on your own, you're building your own network. And then if you do choose to come back, you've got a little credibility because you did something else and you've just like learned on your own. You know, like my time period was 2005 to 2010 in Chicago. So five, six, seven was like, go, 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 go in commercial real estate. Everyone was developing anything they could, buying anything they could. And then boom, screeching halt, global financial crisis. So I think the timing worked out great for me because I saw like, the highest peaks of real estate, all the way down to the bottom, you know, arguably, probably not arguably, the worst since the Great Depression. And hopefully, you know, nothing we'll see again in our career. But I think it's a great rule because it just kind of helps you grow up away from the family. Another rule we have that kind of ties into that a little bit is you don't report to your parent. So, you know, my mentor, so to speak, would be my uncle. And so he's CEO, I'm president, that's who I report to. I would never report to my dad. And for obvious reasons, your relationship with your dad is going to be different with your uncle. I'm super close with my uncle, but he's not your dad. You know, there's things you'll just, you'll say anything to your dad, and maybe there's things you'll hold back to your uncle. You want to, you know, be a little tougher, whereas your dad, you know, you'll show some more vulnerability. And I think that's a great rule. That is a cool rule. That's, that's, um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, my, 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 my son, who's going to be six, and his cousin Vinny, who's going to, who is six, got picked up the other day by by our other brother Joe, and hung out with him for eight hours. They went fishing. They did all this stuff. And the first question was, "How'd they do?" He was like, "They're amazing. They're great. Like they listened. We went to we went to lunch. Like they did everything I told them to do." And I'm like. That's weird, because if I had them for eight hours, like that wouldn't have went down that way. So it's amazing how well they listen to other people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's, a, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, so experience, you, you leave, you have five years, awesome. You probably, you probably gain a lot of knowledge and, and, and experience a lot. You come back, you work for how many years before getting the president position? So I moved back in the fall of 2010, and I was a director. And then I want to say I became president 2023, probably, actually, I can remember exactly. It was 2018, I believe. Okay. I think it was like late 2018. So five years. No, eight years. Oh. 
2010 to 2018. I'm sorry, I'm thinking 2018. Okay. Yeah, but now you've been president for five years. Got you. So how, okay, here's another thing I think about. Like we've been, Adobe and our our businesses have been open for five years. Change is insane. It's moving faster than ever. COVID, you know, HR issues and challenges, right? Legal issues. People are just all over the place now. It's moving really, really fast. We've We've had to constantly be uh, changing and adapting. 100 years, you guys have done this a thousand times. You now are the next generation to come in, kind of, you know, plant your seed and get get into, you know, uh, start taking control. How how about the 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 generation before? Are they pretty good with change? Are they letting you kind of do your thing? Do they they kind of step back a little bit? Like I could see that being these guys who are in control forever now or even employees who did things one way under your your parents generation are they how hard is that or is it kind of just you just keep doing what they're doing no it's it's honestly it's a great question because look i mean if you've been doing something successfully for 35 years you're not exactly like oh let's just try something completely new right is it just the natural behavior but culture changes everything changes right one thing that i think really helps my generation g4 is my grandfather was a little unique and rare for his era. He could let go. He was, well, he was able to hand off the business. And that was rare for that era. So he died 10 years ago. He would have been 90. You know, so he, was, he basically got into bit in the business in the um, like early, mid-50s. So like that era of businessman. You guys all know that type. And so he was able to hand off. And so because he was able to do it, my dad and uncles you know, had that same sort of mentality. And we kind of learned pretty quickly on once I got back that, you know, you had to really let me do my thing. And part of the thing what I wanted to do when I came back, which is also what the family wanted, is look, you know, we've been around long enough. We have a portfolio of certain different asset classes. I wanted to come in and kind of create something new and not just come in and manage our retail properties or manage our office because we have a team for that. You know, what value am I really adding? What am I really creating to help grow the business? And so really, you know, the intent with the new members that come in in G4 is to create that new niche, a new way, a new business unit within the business, whether it's a new asset class within real estate or whatever it might be, you know, to create, you know, financial success and whatnot. And so we kind of understood quickly that, you know, my uncle David, you know, he couldn't come to my meetings because if he's at the meeting, he's the guy with the white hair and everybody wants to hear from him. And so it was almost like, I don't want to say sink or swim, but it was kind of like, figure it out. Talk to me before meetings. If you have questions, come to me after. And over time, just like anything else, if you're doing deals, you're learning. You know, like any business, once you start doing it, you just learn on the job. And the reality is you're going to get things wrong. You're going to make mistakes. That's how it works. But if you made that mistake, this is kind of a famous George Washington line, if you make a mistake, you are now in way better position than the guy that didn't make the mistake because you'll never make that mistake again. At least that was George Washington's mentality. (laughs) He wasn't making the mistake again. Some some of us do. But our whole thing is, look, make a new mistake every day. Yeah. And, you know, so that was kind of how we separated it is he was able to, my uncle and dads were kind of just able to sort of hand it off. Not that they handed everything off in the business, but go do your thing come to us with questions type of thing. I call it the process, not to cut you off, John, but I call it the process where like you have to experience and go through the process. When we got into this business five years ago, if I just took over a huge company, 
I would fail miserably, right? And I tell agents this all the time, that just get in the business. They wanna go out and do 30, 40 units in a year. I'm like, right. if I just handed you 40 units, you would fail miserably. You have to go through the process of doing 10, 12 units, you know, 18 units, then the next and the next, then you build yourself up. I mean, I wanna lose 100 pounds, go run five miles and eat 1,200 calories starting tomorrow. No, you right. gotta build yourself up to that, right? So it's, that, that's, you have to go through the process, you have to fail, I, I agree with that statement you fail more than you succeed um John, i've got a couple basic questions and i think that people sort of wonder this sometimes about residential real estate they ask you know do you just sell in michigan do you sell in florida you know where else do you sell uh commercial real estate and show and brothers is it a detroit thing is it a michigan thing is it a midwest thing yeah no no great question so obviously we've been around long enough so it's kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit over the years um i would say our heritage was enclosed mall shopping center development that was real big, you know, post-World War II, everyone's moving to the suburbs, all that sort of thing. And at that point, we were in the Great Lake states. And that was, just, my grandfather called it that because he was a sailboat racer, so he was a Great Lake racer. So that's, you know, but essentially the Midwest doing shopping centers and malls for Kmart. I would say today, mo all of our development is pretty much in Michigan. Development is tough. It's really you got to be local or you got to have people in those markets to do ground up. You're not going to see great deal flow unless you're there. You're going to see deals that have been picked over and passed over by the local groups if you're not really active in markets. And we're obviously we're very active here. People know us. On the acquisition front, we are in 30 different states. So we'll buy, we'll buy industrial in the Midwest and we'll buy retail essentially anywhere, a specific asset class of these Walmart anchored shopping centers. Does that create travel for you? Um, it does, uh, but we have a specific team for those Walmart properties, and so I'm not, I have very little day-to-day -day involvement in those. And then the industrial, I was doing it out of state on my own and with three little kids and a lot of other things to do. It's just tough. I mean, you gotta, you're not going to get deal flow unless you're in these markets. It's just the reality. you got to be there. And so we brought someone on, and he's actually been a great help because he's younger. He can be in these markets. He's you know, goes there as often as you need to, and we've been able to get some good deal flow out of it. So you keep talking, I hear you say team a lot, and again, I'm relating this a lot to what we do. So we started five years ago, and when you start, there's just a couple of us that are like grinding and we're doing everything. We're wearing all hats. Like Rena, you know, was wearing a ton of hats on the operations side. Like she was doing accounting and marketing and all these different things. Then you start to grow and going from doing everything to letting people do their thing and then creating, you know, now we're at the, I think about scaling and you're like, how do you really scale this business? And I think one of your core values at your company is entrepreneurship. Yeah, entrepreneurial, yeah. Yeah, so it's, that hit home with me when I was going through your thing because I'm like, you have to find people that, that you can let kind of be entrepreneurs, run, rope, give yeah. them some rope, let them, let them do their thing, not oversee them. I think it's the, when I think about a company in 30 states in the food business, restaurant business, retail, industrial, plus other things you guys have going on, like you have to have solid teams. So, you know, it, you know, how do you, how, how is that managing these, 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 team leads, I don't know what you guys call them, I'm sure they all have their own title, but a lead, uh, a team member that lets them do their thing. I mean, are those, is that easy for you? Is it, is it kind of like uh, hard to manage these guys? Because I feel like an entrepreneur can be aggressive and right. be maybe, uh, I know how I am. Do you find challenges with that? 
Yeah, no, I mean, certainly, of course, right? I mean, you know, managing people is definitely one of the toughest parts of any business. Um, you know, because we've been around so long, we have a lot of systems and processes in place. So it's almost like the flip side of that sometimes is we need to make sure, that's why it's a core value of ours, that we stay entrepreneurial. Because it's easy when you've been around a while and you've got a kind of a stable base of portfolio and teams of people that we're lucky that we have a lot of longevity with our people. We've had people that have been with us a long time. So a lot of people are promoted within. I and mean, we have a woman that started as a secretary 30 some years ago, and now she's VP of all asset management and oversees you know, all of our retail and our office portfolio of uh, awesome. properties. And so it, it's, we've been good at being able to kind of bring people up and then give them the rope to do things because the reality is you can't do everything. And if you try to do it all, you have no choice in, you know, when you're a young company until you kind of build it up. But I mean, it's definitely a challenge. But I mean, the way I look at it, it's you got to hire the right people and you got to you know, hire people that believe in our core values. You got to be entrepreneurial, got to be opportunistic. You know, they got excellence as one of our other ones people, integrity. If you act with those four items when we're hiring somebody, we know there's going to be a pretty good opportunity that, pretty good uh, likelihood that they're going to succeed. And look, no different than my uncle with me is kind of how I use uh, one of our newer hires to go buy the industrials. I let him do his thing, come with questions, but learn on your own. Because look, at the end of the day, like we're all afraid to make mistakes, certainly when we're younger. Then you realize Everyone makes mistakes. Now, half the time you're talking to people and they tell you something, it's not true. You know, you just kind of learn that overdoing. And so once you kind of understand that, it's like, yeah, you can let a younger person go out there. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Obviously, you have to still keep an eye on people and have, you know, standard reporting. But I think that process and just that sort of like internal way that we look at things is you, how we operate, is you got to let people kind of control their own destiny. And they're happier. They last longer, they're happier. I wouldn't want anybody looking over my shoulder every day. I mean, you gotta let them do that. Nobody likes that. Yeah, nobody likes They can that. pretend, but yeah, they don't. I mean, people that you have to do it with, or else they literally will like walk off a cliff. That's why, you know, John's with us today. I, I have say. to be with him all the time. He knew me very well before he hired me, so he knows how weird I could be, out. yes. Yeah. You know, our generation, when we talk about the different generations, has probably experienced the biggest cultural change over the last four years um, than, than we've seen in a while. And I'm sure that the culture has changed from generation to generation, but you're probably also seeing the mentality change among maybe younger employees, younger agents um, as they get started in your company and you know, work from home versus coming to the office every day, um, you know, different work-life balance. How are you navigating that? What is your experience in observing that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a tough one right now, right? I mean, it's, um, it's kind of up in the air. It seems like the vast majority of people like that work-life balance. They like the hybrid work. So we went hybrid work after you know, everyone was coming back to the office. Um, and it, it works fine. I mean, I think it's better when everyone's there. It's just the reality. But, you know, was, were people there longer than they maybe needed to be? Pending the jobs probably as well. Technology has made it obviously a lot easier. So in theory, reality, maybe it did make sense a little bit to adjust some work hours based on the new technology. You know, did we need to work the same way you did 30 years ago? But I will tell you, there's nothing like being in the office. And I find that a lot of the people want to come in. You know, they want to be there. It's you know an easier place to work. It's easier to walk into someone's office and you know ask a question or whatnot. We're you know booking a Zoom or calling someone up. But I mean I think it is a lot of the new reality. 
but I think if you can, I mean, a lot of the younger people should want to come in because that's how you learn. You know, that speaks highly of your culture because if you do have a strong culture, then people will come in and they want to. And that's how I feel around here. And that's why I come in every single day because I like being around this. The, the atmosphere just um, uh, breeds positivity and success. It's energy. Yeah. I mean, you have you, you sit at home and, you know, you don't get that energy. Like-minded people, you know, dry, you know, pushing to accomplish the same goals and win. How, you know, again, you get bigger and maybe it's easier to do in some in some areas or some departments of your company. But, you know, our experience is anybody who sits at home, it just doesn't it doesn't work. But but I can see how it works a couple days a week, one day a week, a couple times a month, whatever. And again, depending on what they're working on versus, yeah. what, you know, it's a big I think deal. The biggest thing we noticed during COVID is you could do everything that had to get done, could get done. You know, any issues or just like all the day to day, but growing the business, you got to be around people, you got to be in the office, you got to be or hitting the streets, whatever your type of role is, not in your house. I agree. So you've been in this position for, I mean, at the company for a while now, but in this position for five years. Uh, what is your, since then to today, biggest accomplishment as the president? Most proudest moment as the president? Um, I don't know if it's a specific moment, but I would say kind of like I talked about earlier, like creating your own niche, you know, coming in and really creating value to a business, you know, that was fine without you, quite frankly, right? And so what I what I'm most proud of is really kind of creating this new business unit, so to speak. Like we were never in the industrial space. And it wasn't like I had some big grand idea like, oh, hey, we should get an industrial. It was just out there working, you know, working the streets. When I mean working the streets, you know, talking to brokers, doing that whole thing and just finding out that like, hey, maybe there's some opportunity here. And we started kind of finding ways to make money in that business. We started buying buildings that nobody wanted. They were, you know, class B, class C buildings. They needed lots of money. Maybe they didn't have all the characteristics, but we kind of found a way to create a niche. And next thing we knew, we built up this business that, you know, was about nine industrial buildings that, you know, I don't know, four or five million square feet. And we were cre creating all this value where we were leasing up vacant buildings, churning and burning. And it really kind of became its own business unit that really was able to, you know, create a lot of liquidity that you know maybe was tied up and unavailable in some of our other deals that were just at different life cycles because real estate it's all it's almost like you know baseball right you get three hits out of ten you're in the hall of fame if you get if you're making three deals a year like the kind of things we're looking for larger deals that's a great year but like you're not getting three deals if you only have three in a pipeline your pipeline better be 10 12 and so like i would say growing that business and the other area was we got big in the built-to-suit business again, which is really developing headquarter-like buildings for really Fortune 500 companies, like Masco's headquarters, Hennigas Automotive, University of Michigan Health, things like that. And so like those were two business units that are, can be very profitable, but they're very competitive. And you're not going to get those deals. You're not going to be out there finding, you know, value-add real estate or off-market or big corporate built-to-suits if you're not really out there doing that. And the reality was, is my dad and uncles, you know, they were too busy on other parts of the business to do that. And they were kind of managing the business, growing kind of what we had, but they weren't actively going out looking for all this new stuff. And so when I was kind of able to create that, you know, that made me proud because it was like, hey, I came here because, you know, in a family business, your biggest 
um, not concerns, not really the word, but maybe, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing something, you know, you don't just want to like be there. Like you just joined the family business. And you're just another guy in the office. Like you want to like create something and grow it. And so when that kind of like all started to, you know, come to fruition, it was, you know, proud that like, Hey, I created something here that, you know, has had really good, you know, success for the family. See, this is where I, this is where I find real estate so interesting because there's so many niches. Like we sell residential real estate. Then within residential, you have investors, right? You have all these different things. And then commercial, there's a million different niches. And I remember in 2008 when the market got really, really down and tough and it was the ugly years. I remember seeing industrial buildings for 50 cents a square foot, like signs, you know, <laughs> 10,000 square feet, 100,000, 50 cents a square foot to now today, you know, 15 years later, you're seeing these deals at the square price per square foot uh, uh, pricing. And you're like, oh, my God. So what years between 08 and now did you see that? the market was going to take a shift into where industrial was going to be profitable because nobody wanted industrial nobody. 15 no, years right. ago. And what made you, th what, made, what, what, what gave you that trigger point or to, you know, to, to say, we got to go in industrial. Yeah. So basically, you know, you had the global financial crisis, right? And GM and um, Chrysler at the time filed bankruptcy, you know, Ford kind of worked their way out of it. Um, all these OEMs, you know, or excuse me, all the tier ones had similar bankruptcies, whatever, restructuring, all that sort of thing. So these buildings were, to your point, on the market for cheap, you know, from call it 2008 to 2010, 11, you know, single digits. We bought one for a dollar a foot. We bought a million square foot building for a dollar a foot. But generally people were buying books for, buying buildings for five, ten dollars a foot. It's crazy. Fifteen dollars a foot. And so we, you know, but come 2010, you know, a lot of people, if you weren't like, I mean, obviously everyone in Detroit's somewhat connected to the auto industry because that drives this town. Hey, nice little pun there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they came out of bankruptcy and they start printing money because they had these clean balance sheets. So then the tier ones are doing well and they start getting up to selling almost 17 million cars again and they surpass that. So it's kind of like all of a sudden, all these tier ones, all these tier two suppliers and tier three are doing well. The OEMs are doing well because they're making money again with way better balance sheets. And so like the industrial brokers, which is really where our deal flow comes from, is really the brokerage community, is they're busy. And yet you could still find discounts because it just takes time when you have that much vacancy like industrial had. I don't know what it was, maybe 20, 30 percent vacancy out there, you know. Now it's sub 2% and it's been sub 2% for probably seven, eight years. It takes time to just fill that up, even though the market's good. So there's just opportunities to buy these buildings. And I would say, you know, we bought that one for super cheap. But on average, we were paying in the 20s, $20 a foot range. So, you know, maybe $20 a foot, 25 32 you know, all in that range. And rents just kept rising because that market just kept increasing. So it's kind of one of those things. Auto's doing well. The industrial brokers are busy again. New contracts are coming out. They need more space. And then now, to your point, industrial, you could have bought for super cheap. Now it's the hottest asset class in commercial real estate. It's crazy. I mean, multifamily's always up there. Like, they always kind of ride number one. But industrial's right there with it. And in a lot of ways, better because, of, you know, you get one long-term tenant. You know, it's, a little, it's more comfortable than multifamily, obviously, if there's a dip in the market. You know, you, well, you have, so 2010, it started to bounce back. These clean, that makes sense, clean balance sheets, and they start to rock. Now we have this 13 year run, which I would say has been a hell of a run from 2000. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from my experiences in residential, 2000, like late 11, like 12 to 
2021 residential was insane. It, everything just kept going up. Inventory was, was good. It started getting tight the last couple of years. It's really tight now. But now you're talking, you know, sub 2%, right? Um, where's the opportunity in the next 10 years? Is it, you know, what, what do you, what do you look for? Cause when you, you can't create inventory, do you, you know, what do you, what do you do? And can I add a look, sort of a follow-up? Cause I thought this was sort of interesting with your Chicago roots in seeing a change happening in both Chicago and Detroit. And we sort of made that comparison in the last podcast in the restaurant industry. You know, is there a shift? I mean, if it's so industrial, is there a shift back to Detroit and is it coming? Is it, is it where it, does it have anything to do with, you know, some, negative perception in Chicago, perhaps. Does that have anything to do with it? Or, you know, I guess follow up to that is, how is Chicago and Detroit similar similar and different and what do both futures look like? Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. So I'll start with Simon's. I mean, the one thing we didn't talk about is how low rates have been. And so during this cycle that we've had that's been great for industrial, residential, everything really in real estate, including office up until COVID, you know, office even was okay. I mean, suburban office in Chicago, Detroit, a lot of Midwest markets, you know, struggles, but his rates were so low. So it was easier to get deals, deals done. I mean, just quite frankly, you could pay more when your cost of capital was less. Now that's doubled, you know, in the last year and change. And so the execution now makes it, while there's still opportunities out there, there's not as many, but they're out there. I mean, people say, oh, you can't find value. You can always find it if you're really out there grinding, hustling enough to find it. They are there, but there's less of them. But the execution now, because banks, the stress in the banking system is way different. Cost of capital is way more. So everything to, you know, you, you can't pay what you used to be able to pay for deals anymore. Just hard to do. It's not as much leverage. And, you know, while rents keep rising, which helps, but at the end of the day, you know, every other piece that's important to the deal isn't there. So I think the opportunities will be, there will be properties that go back. There just will. Now, will it be an industrial? I don't know, because rents keep rising and tenant activity is still pretty good. And those go back because the, the, the loans that those current owners have are coming due. Like those are 10-year loans. They're usually a lot of times. So it all depends, right? If there's the securitized side and there's more like the bank and the syndication. But generally all these bank loans are floating rates. So if you locked in at, you know, four or five percent and now you're at eight, nine percent and you bought a deal at a five percent cap rate and rents are going to keep going up, well, you're underwater. Yeah. And so depending how strong the sponsor is, you might have to give that back. On the securitized size side of it, they're 10 year term notes and they're fixed, you know, so in reality, but if you're banking on kind of a value add, you're buying maybe a multi-deal and you're going to spend some money on improvements, you're going to lease it up. All of a sudden, your cost of capital doubled in that time period. The numbers might not work, so you might give it back. And you, you'll see some of that, but that takes time. I mean, it doesn't go through the system that quickly because the reality is banks don't want them back. Yeah. The securitized side definitely can't take them back. They're not you know, equipped to do it. I mean, they did it in 2008 and 9, and it was a disaster. So that just takes time. You would think they'll extend and not want to take them back because they don't want to do that. Uh, but some will, and there'll be opportunity there. Uh, you know, to your point, John, on um, uh, Chicago and Detroit, and just kind of the Midwest in general, is there's definitely a push towards, you know, with EV, electric vehicle manufacturing, and it's, it's kind of like a couple of things where they want to go. They need the labor, you know, that's critical, and they need, you know, states that are good for business. Illinois is not, you know, it's a really high-tax state, 
you know, you're not hearing of any of these EV plants in Illinois. Hmm. Right. If you really think about where they're going, they're in Michigan, which obviously makes sense. We have a good labor force here. Um, taxes are relatively low, but, you know, we're not as, you know, we're not right to work anymore. So we're not as strong as Kentucky, Tennessee, and kind of more of like the southeast is getting a lot of them. Um, so I think you'll start to see, not start, you're already seeing it. It's been going on for a while. The southeast will continue to have growth. And I think Detroit will always have it because we have such a good, the supply chain's here, manufacturing core is here, and the good labor's here. Uh, but the reality is a state like Illinois, these high-tax states, uh, will struggle a little bit to get some of these big deals. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, if the labor's there, you know, that's, I think, still the largest contributing factor. A lot of friends that moved to Chicago, you know, between 2008 and 2011, either move back or somewhere else. I'm just seeing a lot of that. So it sort of sparked that question. And, um, you know, I mean, we're seeing great things around here. Now, in a sort of micro Detroit suburban uh, geographical economic kind of question, I live in Rochester Hills. The Palace of Auburn Hills moves down to, uh, to downtown Detroit. And it was like two minutes away from my house. I always saw the show stack sign. And, you know, after they moved and uh, and then, of course, the palace is is uh, razzed and, and it's currently a parking lot with a bunch of cars in it. They're right? gone. Cars are gone. Cars are gone. OK. <laughs> what is to become of that property? Show. Those are all Jeff's cars. Oh, wow. That was like 400 cars. there. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. So the interesting thing about all those cars, I mean, by the way, you know, obviously everyone drives up north on 75, certainly in the summertime. So people would always comment on that sign. And the cars, be like, what are you doing there? What's that huge pile of dirt? And what are all these cars? And that was, you know, the, the chip shortage. Oh, right. So if you remember, you don't hear about it anymore, but, you know, there was that uh, plant in Japan that blew up and, you know, others and whatnot. And so all these vehicles were made and they had no chips. And so they needed somewhere, the auto industry, it's not uncommon. I mean, there's companies that literally for the auto industry, that's all they do is they find parking for cars that are done, but they can't store them in the, on the lots, the assembly plants anymore. So that was just cars being parked there without the chips. Okay. And they, over time, they kept kind of changing what they were, but that eventually they got that problem solved. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we bought that. It's kind of interesting timing. So we bought that in um, the summer of 19 or we closed. And the plan was high-tech office R&D, kind of what you see up and down I-75, M59, Rochester Hills, you know, office R&D, flex-type buildings, big tier one suppliers, things like that. Well, COVID happens. That business basically shuts down. Yeah, R&D was still active, but obviously people weren't in the office. And office space, still today, CFOs don't want to really spend a lot of money on it. And so they call it like corporate headquarter office R&D business, which has always been so strong in that marketplace, which is why we bought the palace, essentially went away. And so we're like, man, what do we do with this thing? You know, like when you buy vacant land and, you know, we bought it from a billionaire off market. It wasn't like we stole the thing. And, you know, so we paid a you know, retail pricing for it. I mean, until you get that first deal, you're nervous. You know, you have sleepless nights. Like we got to put this property to work. And so we're like, what are we going to do here? And then all of a sudden the EV thing, it's all everyone talks about now in automotive, but it, really in 2020, it wasn't that much talked about yet. People were still talking about autonomous was going to be first or whatever it was. The EV transformation, the transformation to EV is huge for industrial real estate. It just is. And so now, and it's, you know, been in the paper. So, you know, obviously happy to talk about it. Um, you know, we're working on a, a, a large building for GM. 
So GM has the Orion plant down the street where they're going to be making the electric Silverados, Sierras, and Sierra Denali pickups, which is great because those are, you know, you would think will be big selling items because the non-electric trucks are some of the best selling items. So this is a mission critical electric vehicle parts plant for that facility. So everything they're going to be, they're going to be manufactured somewhere else. And then they come through our building, everything but the batteries, and they get put together. And then it's 24 hours a day, 365. The parts from here will go to Orion to build the electric trucks, which is a truck a minute. Wow. Wow. Every day, that's, every ex hour. that's exciting. That's, that's awesome. Incredible. That is incredible. And Pretty cool. So that will take up most of the site, but not all of it. Uh, but obviously, it's a great deal, and we're you know super excited to be a part of it, working with GM. Um, and then we'll have about another 20 acres to um, develop, you know, as once we get that next. Year. You mentioned the uh, that man-made mountain that just keeps yeah. slowly, slowly over time, maybe getting bigger. Is that? I mean, the rumor, of course, is always that it's going to be a ski resort. Is that? <laughs> is, do you know anything about that? Is that Are you talking about the one next door? The right next to where the palace was. It's like a way stop or something. Yeah, my kids call it Stink Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's getting touched, is it? That's being uh, capped. So okay. half of it, the, the side closest to the palace, already, palace has already been capped. And then the other side, I think, was recently capped or is in the next six months, six, 12 months. And they were, I don't know the exact plans, but it's going to be like a walking trail. It's like the highest point in Oakland County. Uh, so despite, you know, some of the garbage you might see over there, maybe the scent every now and again, I'm told once it's capped and you kind of do it properly, it actually can be like a nice walking trail. But the reality is, you know, northern Oakland County, was landfills back in the day when the when city of Detroit was growing and we own a site in Rochester Hills 100 acres the old suburban softball if you know sure. it yeah. yeah and that's a landfill sure. that's been capped it's just that when the city of Detroit was growing all the construction debris from that just went to North Oakland County because nobody was living here then yeah, and then it got developed and it turns out like it ends up being this great area and it, people from out of town don't get it like why is there a landfill here you know, you would never think to put a landfill there but they didn't because nobody was here back then oh, that's interesting that multi-unit giant development you know was uh developed right there across the street from the suburban softball spot oh there's new apartments yeah yeah and i mean there's just it's massive but i heard it was you know sort of difficult to develop that because of what was underneath it and that yeah it's tough soil oh yeah i mean landfills are challenging interesting yeah i mean it's probably something that you've got to research and know all about right too much about yeah <laughs> i would not recommend it <laughs> so you mentioned office buildings like how like you know with with covid they're they're tough right now you know when you think about 08 and industrial not many people would touch it are there like can you look at office building the same way where like you know are, are these office buildings vacant are are there is there a future for these i mean what do they you drive down some of these areas and you're like Look at all these offices. That was the same feeling I had when I looked at industrial in 08. You know, what, what happens to these big, beautiful buildings that nobody's in? That's a really good point, actually, when you compare it to industrial. You're right, nobody wanted that. Because when you're in the weeds and you understand the business, you know, sometimes you're your your own worst enemy because you know too much. And you've just seen it. You've, like, struggled with these office properties uh, for you know, long periods of time. So is there opportunity? Yes, right. There's always a contrarian view. And there are people buying office for sure. I think the, the biggest thing to point out difference than industrials, office buildings are CapEx intensive. I mean, think about it. A lot of them have parking decks. Those things need constant cash. Um, you have elevators, you know, roof, you know, heating, cooling, floors. You've got to constantly renovate. The deals, making a deal is very expensive because you've got to build out the space. 
Um, you know, everything about, and rents really don't go up and they're gross leases. Whereas you take industrial, while nobody wanted to touch it, there still was a lot to like about it for the people that knew it, which wasn't us yet, by the way, but I kind of joke with people. I was like, man, you guys had the best kept secret all these years. CapEx is limited. You really have roof, generally landlord's responsibility, unless it's maybe brand new building, maybe parking lots, you know, it can kind of go either way. You don't have a whole lot else, you know, is the reality. You know, yeah, you have a small little office space that's air conditioned. The rest of the warehouse is usually just heated. So your CapEx is way less. The leases are generally net leases. So as expenses rise, tenants pay that. Whereas an office, you know, they, they're capped and there's base years and all these kind of complicated things. So I think it'll probably take people not so into the office building space because some of us are just so jaded. Uh, you'll see multi-conversions, and we're already seeing those. You're going to see office buildings converted to multi. It's not, but construction costs kind of have to come down to do that. The yeah. bottom line is we're way overbuilt. Yeah. And most Midwest markets are overbuilt. Where I like, I say I like office anywhere, but where I think it makes more sense is growth markets. You know, so whether that's the Southeast, uh, Sunbelt, places like that, I think you'll see it because people are still moving there. And I do think over time, more and more people will come back to the office. But a market like Detroit or Chicago, suburban Chicago in particular, I think it'll be tough because rents re haven't gone up in 20 years. So pre-COVID, it was a tough asset class. Then you factor in old product, heavy capex, less users, overbuilt. You need to convert these buildings to something else. Now, fortunately, a lot of them are in good locations. Like you look at the Cora Southfield or Troy, like these aren't bad locations. Now, there's obviously markets that are you know, less, right. uh, not nearly as good locations, but it, there, will be, there will be people that make money buying office buildings on the cheap for sure. That makes sense. Us personally, I just let that, let someone else go do that. It's the same feeling. I mean, when I, like I said, it's the same feeling when you used to see these, these huge industrial buildings vacant. Now you drive and you see these big, beautiful office buildings. You're like, what, what happens to this, you know? But everything has a cycle. Everything figures itself out. Uh, food. You guys are in the food business. You said you have an uncle that runs that side. Do you have a cousin that's next gen for that? Yeah, so uh, one of my cousins, Jake, he, um, he worked at Mod Pizza, which was one of our brands for a while. He was a brand leader over there. And then now he is, uh, actually has his own startup in the food business, uh, kind of in the gig economy, so to speak. And he's also kind of the in charge. He's the family representative to the food business. So my uncle, when he eventually retires, he's chairman now and he has a CEO. You know, you're going to need a family involvement, right, to oversee this business. So my cousin, Jake, will, has that role. Um, and then we'll see, there's probably two more cousins that'll join the business. One is going to join the real estate side. Um, and then, you know, we'll see kind of after that. So how do you, so food is, I grew up in the food business. Our last episode was all about food, <laughs> tough business. I mean, we talk about work, people working in the food business. Like I see our, our facilities that we own as a family, how difficult that is, uh, with the next, with the next, you know, generation of kids not wanting to work in that business. Uh, nights, weekends. I mean, you guys own how many different, mostly franchises, right? Yeah. So we own 170 restaurants and all franchised except we own Ogas. So okay. Ogas, we own the brand. Gotcha. And then it's Applebee's, Mod Pizza, Del Taco, and Wendy's. Gotcha. So Ogas, you own the brand. Do you, is, are you guys planning on franchising that or running them, being you know, um, a corporate I think so. owned? Um, not sure. Right now, what we're doing with it because of you know, Gold Belly and 
DoorDash and Ghost Kitchens and all these opportunities, we're able now to go into, through Goldbelly, you get pretty good feedback from markets where people want us. And Olga's did national expansion like 30 years ago, long before we were involved. Essentially didn't go well, it failed, but got a lot of Olga's customers in these markets. And so is what we've been focused on with Olga's growth outside of Michigan is we get in ghost kitchens in these markets and we're on the apps. We're on the food delivery apps. Nice. And if they do well enough there, and we, you know, over time it might say, okay, maybe you do open a few brick and mortar locations. Okay. Well, John being Greek, how do you feel about the brand? <laughs> well, you know, that is a surprise to me. I had no idea that Olga's was out of Michigan. I mean, I didn't think it was anywhere else. I, that's, that's sort of surprising. What do you think of their Euro? <laughs> I mean, it's been a while since I've been to an Olga's. He's got to know the truth. But, you know, I was thinking, um, uh, you know, for my birthday, I want to buy the office uh, lunch today. Maybe it'll be Olga's. (laughs) I think it sounds like a terrific idea. (laughs) It's a different style, the Euro. It's an Olga, technically, than like a traditional Greek. My wife worked at Olga's through, uh, I want to say, high school. She worked at Olga's. It's been a while. West Bloomfield or Birmingham? I don't know. I can't remember. I should know. But she, all she talks about is the snap, the snackers. Snackers. I know my my mom and dad knew. You know the the woman. Olga. Yeah. 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 We have a foundation in her name oh, that great. donates to uh, female-owned businesses. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Where do you see yourself? Where do you see the like? What What are your goals for the company? I mean, obviously, you had a lot of time left. Knock on wood and pray, because we're all we're all hopefully you know you're a young young man and and. Uh, you know, you got a lot of years left. Where do you see taking the business in the next 30 years? At the end of this thing, where, where do you see, what's your vision for it? Yeah, no, no, it's obviously a good question. And, you know, I never think that far out, right? Um, it's so easy to kind of get caught up in what you're doing. But you do think, because once you have kids, time moves quickly. <laughs> it doesn't move fast when you don't have kids. Like your 20s take forever. Well, you made, you made the comment, like, you don't want to just come here and, and be... Um, you know, just be another person that works here. And when you think about a hundred-year-old company, like, I, it's almost like it's historic. It's it, there's so much history there. It's kind of like it's kind of like past presidents. Like, what do you want your mark to be right. when you're done? What do you want the next gen to be saying about you? You know, man, uh, my uncle Jeffrey was. You know, he did this, and it was amazing. Or you know, what, where do you what do you see them saying about you a hundred years from now? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's a couple things. I think one. It's clearly the transition to G5. You know, I think, you know, it was very important to, you know, my great-grandfather, Lou, and then my grandfather, Jerry, to, like, pass the business on and, you know, keep the family close while doing it and, you know, not run into any family disputes, which is obviously the norm in family businesses. So I think, you know, the transition, you know, complete the transition, by the way, to G4, where we are now, as my dad and uncles, you know, eventually fully retire uh, so it'd be me and a couple of cousins and have us, you know, working in unison really well, each kind of in our own niche, but partners and everything together. And then continue to grow the business, I think, in the ways that we've that I've been doing it, um, you know, with this industrial piece, you know, with this development piece of this corporate headquarters, um, sort of built to suit development. But it's really, I would say, keeping the family atmosphere that we have, like we really view our business that everyone's family, not just the family members. And that's why we have people that have been with us 35, 40. I mean, there's people that have been with the business more than years. You and I have been alive. All three of us, happy birthday. Thank you very much. Um, I think all of us are 40, right? And um, so, I mean, I think it's more, it's, it is about the legacy, right? I mean, everyone wants to make money. Everyone wants to do well. But it's about 
you know, you want the business to be in a better position when you leave than when you came in. Now, I came in at a funky time, 2010, coming out of the Great Recession, um, but I mean, or the global financial crisis. But I mean, I think those are the key things. It's like really the transition and just, you know, for people to look and say, wow, you know, because I look back and see like all the stuff my grandfather did, you know, like, you know, this is called giants. Like he was the giant, you know, not me. And, you know, all the things he did and he was just figuring it out as he went. Right. And, you know, so it would be nice that, the, you know, my kids will look at like, you know, their grandparents and then their kids will look at us. And you just want to see it to continue, continue to be active in the community, you know, philanthropic and all those sorts of things. The business is important, but, you know, the business isn't you don't live for the business. You live for the family and the things you can give back. And I want those values to remain with the family, you know, for the next hundred years, hopefully. That's awesome. And the word giants, like. When we, when we were thinking of a name for this, it was like, man, giants, like, you know, guys who control or own big companies. It's like, yeah, that's part of it, but not really. It's really about giants. Like when we think of it, when we, th it's probably, you know, when we think about giants, like when I do, I think about like our last episode was Anthony Lombardo. Anthony Lombardo is a master of his craft. Like he is, you could ask him anything about food and that's your guy. And, and you know, running a, a, a restaurant at a, at a local level, like he is a giant. He guy is a master of his craft. He understands everything. Talking to you about, you know, you could just see that you, you, you got it when you talk about industrial and, and knowing the numbers and knowing your industry and knowing, you know, what to look for that, that to, to, to us is like, you know, what's important about this show. And when I think about Anthony, who was our first episode, now you like it, it's, you are a giant because your, your grandpa, yes, your great grandpa, you know, a lot of these guys probably took major risk, but like, Look what you did with the palace. You said a lot of sleepless nights. It's, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't matter where you fall. There's pressure. There's, uh, there's a, there, you have to study it. You have to be passionate. You have to give up your, your life for it. And that, that's kind of the point of giants. So, you know, um, but yeah, I think you do an unbelievable job at it. The hours and the uh, dedication that create the expertise that I think makes you a giant, yeah. you know, on, at least for the, you know, purpose of the show. Um, outside of work, and you've mentioned your kids a couple of times, who is Jeff Shostak? Yeah, family man. So, uh, you know, my wife Rachel and I just celebrated our 11-year anniversary. Congrats. On August 18th. That's great. Uh, we got married up north, so we were up north for it. We usually are. Three little kids, George, Sophia, and Teddy, five, three, and one. Um, so, you know, I know you guys both have young kids as well. So obviously like that's a lot of your time. It's funny how like your priorities change, right? You know, like when you're, before you have kids, you kind of go out all the time. You know, what my wife and I, you go out two nights a weekend and everything's great. You have kids, you're tired. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, they wear you out. And you know, you, we try to get one night out because I think it's obviously important, you know. It's so easy to get consumed in the family. But, you know, as the kids are getting older now, it's like, you know, I coach my son's flag football team, you know, which is funny because I never played football but like I know football I watch it like anybody else but um, you know so it's a lot of kid related activities um, love to play tennis play golf you know it's it's all the stuff that you kind of do when you're little but they just like evolve into like more sure. like adult sort of like activities but I would say just you know we're really big on family um, not just like our immediate nuclear family but my brother who lives here and they're four kids we were just up at Camp Michigania and the greatest thing that we do there is my sister has four kids, my brother has four kids, and she lives in Minnesota, so there's 11 first cousins that wow. all play. Wow. And it's really important for us for the first cousins to be as close as we were growing up as first cousins because it just it's different. You know, I mean, I know your family's like that, 
And um, so it's, you know, that's kind of nothing crazy anymore. Those days are long gone. <laughs> it's true. It's all you have. I say it all the time. I have three kids and my, my two, my oldest are twins. And today was their first day of kindergarten and new school, bigger school. And I dropped them off and, you know, I, I told my, my, I looked at both of them. I said, what's most important? And they said each other. I'm like, exactly. You, you guys are lucky you have each other. A lot of these kids are getting dropped off by themselves. You guys have each other. You look out for each other. You take care of everybody. You don't ever be a bully. You take care of everybody else. Like, you know, and, and if somebody is being a bully, you make sure you protect the per person that's being bullied and, and you protect each other. That's most important. And that's, that's how we grew up. I mean, it's the same exact thing and, and it's, it's extremely, extremely important. But, Passing those uh, values down to the next to. generation has sort of been the theme of this today, you, you know? I mean, we have a ton of family, ton of cousins, ton of kids. Keep having more. I'm actually on call right now for my fourth. <laughs> Keep waiting for that one. But it's insane. Uh, funny Jeff story before, which you, you can end with some questions, John, if you have any. But, you know, first time I ever golf with you you invited me to Knollwood. i find this a funny story you invite me to Knollwood. you're showing me around he's giving me a tour of the place you know your grandpa or great-grandpa who started founded it? uh he didn't found it but he was one of the early members one of the early members yeah. grandfather right and he's telling me oh my grandfather this that and we get to the first tee and we're like all right what's your handicap and he's this was five six years ago seven years ago now he goes I'm a 20-something, not to put you oh, on the For sure, probably 28. I go, I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I go, my family's been in this country like, I don't know, like 50, 60 years. You guys founded this place. How are you a, a 20 handicap? And he looked at me and just smiled. And then, you know, it's probably our first time I ever golf. We've golfed a, a million times since. But Thank you for putting up with my terrible golf. Oh, <laughs> has, the handicap, has the handicap improved? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. Good. But, but where I will say Jeff has been extremely, and I told you this before we started the, the podcast, and not to, not to make you feel awkward or weird, but what I find amazing about you is you, you have, a, like you name like 170 uh, of, uh, restaurants, all this, all this uh, industrial stuff, you got, I mean, just real estate everywhere, 30 states. When you meet you, you'd never know it. And that's what I love the most about you. I think that's really hard to do. A lot of people let that go to their head. Um, we know people who are, you know, don't have companies close to your size that you, you see them and you would, they're second or third gen guys and you, you would think they were the founder and they have this persona. And, and when you meet you, you're the exact opposite. You're Jeff it's almost like I can't believe you're in this position because it's really, really cool, which to me is, the, is an unbelievable compliment because I think you have yeah, a lot of people that. out there who don't, who, don't, uh, you know, who don't do a good job at that. So when you, when you did get into this position and you did, you know, what do you, why, why, how do you think that is? Why do you think that is that you not, did not like, let it get to your, to your head where a lot of guys do? Because I'm sure we both have no people. Yeah, I know I do. Right, no people yeah, like no, that. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm a middle child, you know, so I was ignored as a kid. <laughs> I was too, you can see. <laughs> no, I think it was just um, probably, I mean, honestly, like I go back to my grandfather all the time, is just he was, uh, as, you know, as great as he was and all the great things that he did in the community and in business, he was a fairly low-key guy, you know. I mean, he was out there and everybody knew him, but, um, and he just kind of instilled with us, you know, charity starts with, at home, family glue, and just kind of we've never been, you know, as a family, you know, we're always just, I don't want to say we're low key, you know, we're out there and people know us, but, um, 
You know, my parents, I guess, did a good job. I don't know. Awesome. <laughs> you know, one thing, I mean, we were talking about Detroit and Chicago, and, you know, I really think that it's that generation that created this culture in Detroit of keep your nose to the grindstone and work. Not to, know, not to say we don't know hot shots or anything like that, but I think that that is part of a Detroit culture, whether it still exists or not, I think it at least has been. I mean, and it probably has something to do with the families that came here 100 years ago. Yeah, there's something to do with that, some Detroit grit and just, you know, coming here as immigrants from Ukraine in the early 1900s. And, you know, even though I wasn't there, you know, you hear the story enough and you know the struggles, obviously, that generations before you went through and you like it, it's there with you. Oh, you, know, you, you under, exactly. All right, I want to end on this. You all, you, I know as when we're, you know, you've, you've mentioned him in this podcast, George Washington, <laughs> right? You didn't, did you name your oldest son after George Washington? <laughs> yes and no. So my wife's grandfather was George. Washington. Yes. Washington. No, not George. <laughs> Obviously. George Washington was Jewish? Yeah, you didn't know that. You know, he met one Jew in his life, yeah. by the way. It's really? A, yeah, yeah. There's a great Ron Chernow book. You know, he's the guy that wrote Hamilton, although he's a great historian. And you should read it. Honestly, I joke it should be required, required reading for all American students because you just get this great history of America and you get great background on, like, the founding of the country, obviously. But, you know, it's an 800-page bomber. But it's great. But at some point in the book, he meets some Jewish guy, a doctor, I think, <laughs> shockingly. <laughs> but anyway, so I was reading that book when my wife was pregnant. And we didn't know what we were having. And we, everyone kind of knew we were probably going to be George if it was a boy because Rachel was really close with her grandfather, George, who I was never, unfortunately, wasn't able to meet. And so she was like, yeah, you know, if it's a boy, like, we're going to do George. And I'm reading this book on George Washington. I'm like, this guy's the biggest badass of all time. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely into George. Cool. So I was trying to convince her, actually, to have it be George Washington Showstack. Sweet. I, I did not win that battle, but we <laughs> named him George Leon, which is my grandfather, Jerome Leon. So it's kind of a oh, homage cool. to her grandfather and my grandfather. Um, and, yeah, so a little bit off of George Washington. So, cool. so you, cool. you're in a room with George Washington. You're allowed to ask him one question. What's the, what's the one question you would ask him? Wow, that's a good one. Uh, I probably knew that when I was reading the book. <laughs> you know, it was so current. Because um, it's funny because you read it and you, like, you know, he was just like doing things. It was just, he was just like any other founder of a business, basically, just in a way bigger scale, right? Like just doing things because he had to. You know, he just had to do this or he was going to be killed, right? If he, and I mean, I, oh, what would I ask him? I wouldn't say, how'd you do it? Because he just did it. You know, it just kind of was what it was. Uh, but his expectation about the lo longevity of America probably um, wouldn't have been what it ended up being yeah i don't think they you know foresaw it's amazing the foresight they had i think about the there was a ton of i mean there was a lot of great men back then why why him over everybody else you know what i mean and did he really understand what if he what if he accomplished what he set out to accomplish i wonder if he really understood what that meant for the next so how he, you know we're at had, two hundred and something years now how many years you know, 300 years now, like, about 250. yeah, he had a great ambition is what he had. So when they voted to, um, you know, essentially go to war and, you know, not be part of the British Empire anymore, he showed up in his um, uh, army uniform. 
and he was a tall guy, right? He was probably only 6'2 or something, maybe 6'3, no one knows exactly, which was really tall back then. And so he showed up in his army uniform and was tall. And so Nat, and he did that on purpose. He was a born leader. And so they chose him to be, you know, the leader of the army, you know, and the general of the Continental Army. And so he always put himself in position with never having to ask. He didn't ask to be in charge ever. They always asked him. And, but he knew what he was doing. He was calculated because he wanted to be in charge, but he didn't. He went about it the right way, and he was just this natural leader. And he had a lot of lonely moments in leadership that we all have today, right? There's times where you just got to sit there and make a tough decision. Um, so I'll have to get back to you on what I would ask him. <laughs> all right. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on. This, is, this means a lot. Um, you're, you're, you're awesome. You're a great friend. And, and for doing this, it, it, it's important to us. So, so thank you. And uh, John, happy 40th. Oh, thank you very much. And, it's a great way to uh, get started. Yeah, it's, it, it, it was awesome. And if there's anything you want to end with, you can. But if not, we can't thank you enough. No, it was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Obviously, always good hanging with you, Simon. Happy birthday. Thank Olga's you. lunch for the office All sounds right. great. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a Greek theme, too. You know, it's, it's what people would expect from me. So We do carry out great. So. All right. All right. <laughs> That's Thanks. it. Yeah, thank you guys. <laughs>